The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Welcome to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan. A lot of people, as we, especially the baby boomers, are concerned about Alzheimer's and uh, dementia. Do you know in this country at age 85, the chances of having Alzheimer's disease is 50%? And when we start forgetting names or forgetting why we go into a room, that could be a warning that we are on this path. There's no magic pill to treat Alzheimer's, so it's very important we try to prevent it. A Harvard study in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2003 showed that elevated blood sugars are correlated with the development of dementia. So let's explore this connection further. With us today, we have Amy Berger, who just wrote a book, Alzheimer's Antidote, Using a Low-Carb, High-Fat Diet to Fight Alzheimer's Disease, Memory Loss, and Cognitive Decline. She... uh, she is, has a master's in science, um, is a U.S. Air Force veteran, certified nutrition specialist, and nutritional therapy practitioner. She specializes in helping people with low-carbohydrate, ketogenic, and paleo-style diets. She focuses on nutritional support for issues related to insulin resistance, including obesity, type 2 diabetes, polycystic um, ovary dis- syndrome, hypertension, Alzheimer's disease and more. Her motto is, real people need real food. Now, how many times have we heard that? She loves showing people that getting well and staying well doesn't require starvation, deprivation, living in the gym, and she enjoys turning conventional nutritional advice on its head. She has a blog that covers a wide range of health and nutritional related topics such as insulin, metabolism, weight loss, thyroid function, and more. Her blog is let me spell it for you, T-U-I-T space nutrition. Okay, um, so let's welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Okay, so why don't you tell us how you first got interested in Alzheimer's disease? Sure. Um, I, I have no family history of Alzheimer's disease or dementia, but I do have a family history of type 2 diabetes, obesity, and stroke. And... Um, I read a book called Good Calories, Bad Calories by Gary Taub several years ago, um, and um, he has a chapter in that book. I, I forget the exact title of the chapter, but it's something like Dementia, Cancer, and Aging, and it was the first place I ever read about a connection between insulin, glucose, and Alzheimer's, and it was interesting to me at the time because I'd never heard of it, but <clears throat> it wasn't that fascinating because I had really no 
family history or personal experience with this illness. But several years later, I was in graduate school getting a master's in nutrition, and um, I I had to do a thesis. And instead of doing an original experiment, I was going to do a literature review. And so in, in trying to pick a topic, I said, you know, what is something that I could look at that hasn't been written about a million times already, something that I would actually find really interesting, and something that there would be enough research on that I could actually do a thesis on it. And I said, you know, I'm going to go back to that Alzheimer's thing and see what's there. And when I started looking into the medical research and the scientific literature on this topic, I was just absolutely blown away by what I found. I mean, this this condition, Alzheimer's disease, is regularly referred to as type 3 diabetes or diabetes of the brain in the scientific literature. Wow. Yeah. So uh, what are the biggest risk factors for developing Alzheimer's disease? Uh, there's a couple. The um, We'll talk about the big elephant in the room right away, and that is uh, there is one specific genetic type that is the highest known genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's, and that's called the APOE4 genotype. And the thing is... Um, Not everybody with the APOE4 genes will develop Alzheimer's, and many millions of people who do have Alzheimer's do not carry those genes. So we should be clear that that genotype increases your susceptibility, but it doesn't cause Alzheimer's. And if you don't have it, it's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. But the the far more, to me, the far more fascinating risk factor... Let's talk about this genetic factor just a little bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what is APO4 or APO4? yeah, APOE4 is, um, it, it, it determines the shape and structure of some of the lipoproteins. And the lipoproteins are what carry cholesterol and fatty acids and, and fat-soluble nutrients like vitamins A and D, E, and K throughout the body. And the, uh, the apolipoproteins are, are these little kind of not signaling molecules, but they they help these lipoproteins dock and attach to the right target tissues. And the different uh, isoforms, the different forms of this gene, there's there's APOE2, E3, and E4. And these different types just have very slight changes in the structure of these particles. But that very slight change has very dramatic implications for lipid processing, for anything to do with fats in the body. And so this is why these, these APOE4 individuals tend to have very high cholesterol. Um, they tend to be at much higher risk for cardiovascular disease, heart attack. Um, and it has to do, we think at least, with the shape of these particular lipoproteins from that genotype. Now, I understand if you've got one, see, with the genes, you've got two. Uh, so if you've got two of the, a, if you've got one of the APOE4, you've got an increased risk. And if you've got two of them, your risk is increased significantly. I also Correct. understand that the groups with the longest exposure to eating grains tend to have the lowest rates in eating, uh, in, pardon me, APOE4, and that these people respond very negatively to large amounts of saturated fat. So you're saying that this genetic makeup is not a death sentence that we can get around it. Right, right. It's not a death sentence. Like I said, many people with Alzheimer's disease, don't. they don't have any E4 allele. They, they don't even have one, let alone two. But you're, you're right that some of them respond with an exaggerated 
elevation of lipids from saturated fat, but the more important part to me anyway with that ApoE4 genotype, like you said, it's been selected against in populations that were eating a lot of grain. So these people are the least suited to our modern very high carbohydrate diet. They may also respond negatively to large amounts of saturated fat, but I think the carbohydrate content affects them even more. Okay, so that is one big elephant in the room that is a risk factor for Alzheimer's. And uh, what is the next risk factor you want to discuss? The other one is uh, chronic hyperinsulinemia. And all that means is uh, chronically elevated insulin. Your insulin levels are too high too often. And um, to be clear, and, and this is independent of your genetics, independent of seemingly any other factor having chronically high insulin is is an independent risk factor all by itself. And the the problem with this is that there are many, many millions of people walking around awash in insulin 24-7 and they don't even know it. And the reason many of us don't know it is because this is not a standard part of routine blood work. They will test your fasting glucose and they'll test your hemoglobin A1C, which you know I'm sure your listeners know, but that's kind of like an average three or four month average of your blood glucose level. But what they don't test is your fasting insulin. And in many, many people, fasting glucose will be kept normal and even that A1C will be kept normal, but they're only normal because very, very high insulin is keeping them in check. So there's nothing to alert your doctor or you to the fact that something has gone very awry with your metabolism because nobody's looking at insulin. So what is insulin for those readers that don't know exactly what it is? Uh, insulin is a hormone that, uh, it's getting a very bad reputation these days, but it's, it's like anything else. It's a very critical, necessary hormone. And the problem is when there's too much of it, uh, too often. And, and also with type one diabetes, when there's too little, um, one of the major roles of insulin is to direct metabolism. And one of the ways it does that is when we eat a lot of carbohydrate, and, and our blood sugar rises, insulin is there to get the blood sugar back down. It sort of sends the glucose into your liver or into your cells, either to be burned as fuel in your muscle cells or to be stored as fat in your fat tissue. Um, the higher your insulin levels, the more it signals your body to burn glucose rather than burn fat. It signals your body to store fat, which is why so many overweight individuals have very, very high insulin. And it's really not a calorie issue. It's not a fat issue. It's an insulin issue. And, and insulin does a lot of other things too. I mean, it helps us build muscle, but, but the main thing people know it for is the blood sugar regulation. So what makes the insulin go so high? Good question. Um, there's actually some controversy over that. One thing that we know raises insulin is carbohydrate. And everybody kind of differs in their tolerance of how much carbohydrate they can consume and still keep their insulin levels at a, at a healthy at a healthy level. Um, insulin will always increase after a meal. It's supposed to. And protein will also raise insulin a little bit, but carbohydrate raises it the most. Fat is uh, has little to no effect on insulin, um, dietary fat. Um, those are the dietary factors that increase insulin, but there is some certain factors that will raise insulin or affect insulin sensitivity, really, regardless of what you eat. Like, for example, one of those things is short sleep. If you don't get enough sleep, you will, at least in the short term, have impaired insulin sensitivity, meaning your body will require more insulin to process the same amount of food than it would require if 
if you had a better night's sleep or um, getting, you know, being physically active can help maintain insulin sensitivity. So the things that acutely raise insulin are mostly carbohydrate and protein to a small extent, but certain lifestyle factors can affect how much insulin you need to process that food. And how is this connected with insulin resistance, which I understand is the body does not use insulin properly, so the pancreas keeps chugging out insulin to make up for it, and then eventually that doesn't do the job and the sugar levels go up as well. So how is the increased insulin related to insulin resistance? Right. Good Good question. And and you said the magic phrase. You said that um, the blood glucose will start to go up after your body's already insulin resistant. So in a lot of people, an elevated blood glucose or an elevated hemoglobin A1C is actually a late player in this game. Um, they're kind of the last thing to rise after insulin has already been high for a number of years or decades. So again, there's actually some controversy over what causes insulin resistance, but um, most people, myself included, well, maybe not most, but some people, myself included, think that insulin itself causes insulin resistance. Um, It's kind of like the boy who cried wolf. He's screaming wolf all the time. Eventually, people just tune him out and don't believe him anymore. And I think with the body, when you constantly pummel the cells with insulin, over time, the insulin receptors will be downgraded. There's so much insulin that you don't need any. You, you don't need so many receptors, and and over time, you just the cells stop getting that message of insulin, and and you know the the solution to this. Once your blood glucose is very high because your body's insensitive to insulin. The answer to that, like for example, for type 2 diabetes, is not to give these people more insulin. Most of these people are drowning in insulin already. The answer is to have a diet and lifestyle intervention that resensitizes their body to the insulin that's already there. So insulin resistance is one step in the pathway toward diabetes where your sugars are too high. Correct. Right. Right. So diabetes is actually diagnosed solely by blood glucose, either fasting glucose, A1C, or the response to the oral glucose tolerance test. Nobody's looking at insulin. And again, if if people were measuring fasting insulin, this metabolic dysregulation could be identified years, if not decades, before the blood glucose is elevated. I'd like to point out to the listener that this whole pathway toward diabetes is a continuum. It's not either or. Uh, There's a study by Kaiser that looked at, I think, over 30,000 patients and showed for each point your morning glucose is above 84. You've got a 6% increased risk for diabetes. Also, several of lots of the damage that is caused by diabetes happens long before the doctor's going to notice it in his office. Uh, As we've discussed before, one of the first measures that you're on this continuum going the wrong way is rising adiponectin. The next thing, I, you know, could be others, is that your postprandial glucose, which means your glucose after meal, shoots up. You've got two surges of insulin, and the first to go is the one right after a meal. But doctors aren't testing for that unless you have a glucose tolerance test. So you could be on this continuum, listener, and you could have all the risk for diabetes but your doctor's not going to know it. For example, diabetes is associated with a four times risk of stroke, three times risk of heart disease, and um, just the rise in insulin, you know, is going to cause problems in your brain and sugar. So it's, it's yeah. a problem. So, you, so you know, you just need to follow this. High blood sugars, for example, will shrink your hippocampus, which is your memory center. 
And even having a large belly, which kind of goes along with diabetes, you've got a smaller memory center. So this is something we have to look at well before the doctor finally tells us we're at the end of the road and we've got high sugars. Right. And, and Dr. Downs, if I could just say real quick, um, a lot of the comorbidities with type 2 diabetes and metabolic syndrome won't be connected to insulin because, again, nobody's measuring insulin. There's a lot of women with PCOS or and men and women with hypertension, skin tags. Um, there's, you know, so many other issues that are... They're, they're even tying like vertigo and tinnitus and Meniere's disease, you know, these inner ear imbalance disorders to elevated insulin. And these are people whose glucose is normal. So the doctor and the patient, they have no clue that this is actually a hyperinsulinemia problem. But if these people get their insulin tested, they are frequently through the roof. And, and this is long before this will be uh, visible in the glucose. Yeah, so... Um we can't be, yeah. We we need to do some tests before we uh, get to that end line of having a sh- morning fasting level of 126. So, how does this insulin and uh, ins- high insulin connect with Alzheimer's disease and brain neurodegeneration? Well, like I said at the beginning, um, they are now frequently referring to Alzheimer's as type 3 diabetes, or sometimes they call it brain insulin resistance. And uh, the primary pathological feature of Alzheimer's disease, and there's other forms of dementia, but with Alzheimer's specifically, it is um, affected areas of the brain lose the ability to harness energy from glucose. So I I basically, to simplify it, I say it's an energy crisis in the brain. It's a fuel shortage in the brain. And when these neurons no longer have enough energy, they actually start to wither and atrophy. And so the connections between these neurons, these trillions and trillions of synapses actually degrade, you know, and, and cellular communication breaks down. And the natural result of that is the memory loss and the confusion and the personality changes that we see in this disease. Yeah, one of the tests they do for Alzheimer's to see if you're on that path is they do a PET scan with something called FGG or something, and they measure the areas where your glucose metabolism is lower, and that's a sign that you're on this path. So uh, what she's saying is absolutely correct. Uh, And, And they can identify this decrease in the brain in the brain glucose uptake in people at risk for Alzheimer's as young as their 30s and 40s. So like you just said about diabetes, it doesn't happen overnight. It's kind of a continuum. Nobody wakes up all of a sudden one day with Alzheimer's. This happens very gradually. And I think there's a lot of signals that are maybe missed, but um, this, this starts the, you know, the canary in the coal mine and the, just the, the pathology starts very early, long before. And I think, in people that young, the brain is compensating. They're able to, to get over it and still function well and take care of themselves. But over the years and over the decades, it progresses to a point where you cannot, you can't compensate for it anymore. And that's when you start manifesting symptoms. Yeah. And the memory, the hippocampus is one of the first areas to go, which is very sad. That's why we see those symptoms long before the disease comes about. So how is this high insulin what, what is the connection of what it's doing to the brain? There, are, you know, that's that's the big mystery. There's a lot of research to still be done there. Now, insulin, um, insulin is active in the brain. Insulin does cross the blood-brain barrier, and there's even some um, some evidence that the brain makes its own insulin. But that's kind of a little uncertain. Um, it's 
I, it's hard to say the role that that the insulin is playing in the brain, but it. I think a lot of glucose uptake in the brain is not insulin dependent. You know, glucose will get into the brain regardless. Um, but I do think that that brain insulin resistance can impair the ability of the brain to use glucose. And um, they've, they've actually done some research where a lot of these individuals who have too much insulin in the periphery, meaning like the whole body outside the central nervous system, actually have too little insulin in the brain. That was so a it's, it's, question, yes. <laughs> yeah, and that's so it's almost like different parts of the body can ha- can respond differently to insulin or be affected or be resistant to insulin in different ways. You know, even like the liver can be different from the adipose tissue and the muscle tissue and obviously the brain. So, um, because they've done, you know, they've done some studies where they infuse insulin directly into this, into the central nervous system. Usually they, they do like a nasal spray of insulin and some people with dementia will show improved cognition in the short term. And so again, I don't know if the answer is to give those people more insulin or to resensitize their brain to the insulin that's already there. Well, one to, to the insulin that's trying to get through. One connection that kind of pops up. If you've got low insulin in the brain or you've got insulin resistance, it decreases an enzyme uh, called IDE, which uh, insulin degrading enzyme, I assume. But that coincidentally or not so coincidentally is the same enzyme that clears the amyloid beta out of the brain. Now, amyloid beta, I understand, is a pretty normal process in the brain, but when it uh, is not cleared out properly, it can cause problems leading, you know, compounding Alzheimer's disease. So if we've got low insulin or insulin resistance, it's going to pull down this enzyme IDE, which means you won't be clearing out the amyloid beta, which is a setup for Alzheimer's. Is that correct? That is Pretty correct, yeah. Um, it's it's fascinating to me that the same enzyme that degrades insulin after it's done its job is the enzyme that breaks down these amyloid proteins. And uh, for anyone listening who's who's done any research into Alzheimer's or has maybe read some articles, you will constantly come across this term amyloid plaque. And there's a lot of researchers that who for a long time have thought that these amyloid plaques are causing Alzheimer's. And I think they are exacerbating Alzheimer's. They are certainly making it worse, but they're not the primary cause. And there's a couple of reasons we can, we know this. And and one of them is this decrease in the glucose metabolism of the brain that we just talked about happens long before these plaques take hold, long before these plaques are deposited. And number two, upon autopsy, when they you know, dissect the brains of Alzheimer's patients, many Alzheimer's patients do not have significant plaque. And then there are people who die from other causes that they get their brains dissected postmortem, and they do have significant plaque. So the plaque, I think, is contributing to the pathology, but it's not causing it. And there have been several pharmaceutical drugs developed to target these plaques, and they've been a complete failure. And I say that in terms of They've, they've been successful in that these drugs do decrease the plaque formation. However, the decrease in plaque formation has not translated into any improvement in the actual condition or in the disease progression. So stopping the, prog- stopping the formation of these plaques has no impact on this illness. So that should tell us, if nothing else, these plaques are either not causing the illness or they're not the biggest, most important cause. Sounds like this is really stumping the scientists. 
it is. It's it's stumping them, but I think it's. I'm I'm not trying to oversimplify. I mean, this is a very complex disorder, but I think we're ignoring what's staring us right in the face. Well, what are some of the other risk factors for Alzheimer's disease? Obviously, age. I mean, of course, it's older people that are getting it. Um, but I think that that's a product of the fact that it's 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 somewhat natural for people to become more insulin resistant as we age. And whether that's because we are you know less active, we lose muscle mass. Um, some some older people, even just as you get older, it becomes harder to even cook and digest some of the higher fat, lower carbohydrate foods. You know, if you're 78 years old and you live by yourself, it's a lot easier for you to make a bowl of cereal for dinner than for you to grill yourself a steak, let alone be able to cut that steak and chew it and digest it well. Um, so I think that's a confluence of factors leading to the age. Yeah, and some other risk factors are high-carb diet, increasing the risk for dementia, about 88%. Uh, high blood sugar, shrinking the hippocampus. Um, being overweight, cardiovascular disease, sleep apnea is supposed to double your risk. Right, well, sleep apnea is a, is a contributor to metabolic syndrome and insulin resistance. Exactly. And cancer treatment is supposed to increase the risk. Uh, uh, tyrannic brain injuries do. Um, artificial sweeteners. I just found an article that artificial sweeteners, they thought, increased the risk for, that, for Alzheimer's disease. So, and um, are there any medications that increase the risk? Oh, that is a fantastic question. Um, I don't know if they have actually made this connection, but I make the connection in my book. I personally make this connection, which is between um, at least two, if not three, of of the most highly prescribed drugs these days. And and the first is statins, which lower cholesterol. Now, anyone out there who's not familiar with, with brain structure, the human brain is built largely out of cholesterol. I mean, the physical structure of the brain is very, very dense in cholesterol. And so when we take these drugs that deliberately impair our body's ability to, to make cholesterol, then it's no wonder that we have cognitive dysfunction. And, and you can go on the Mayo Clinic website and on the US FDA's website, they very clearly list memory problems as known side effects of these drugs. Uh, um, Coming to a break, uh, uh, unfortunately, I hate to interrupt you when you're on a roll, but we'll get more back. We'll get back to this right after the break. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Step-by-step, you made it through the journey of pregnancy. Now, your baby is in your arms, and you're on the cusp of a new journey, breastfeeding. As a new parent, you receive a lot of advice, much of it conflicting, some of it outdated. Tune into Born to be Breastfed with host Marie Biancuso to bust through the myths about feeding your baby. Marie and her guests will help you figure out what you can expect and put you on the best and surest path on your breastfeeding journey. Listen every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
are busy, stressed, and can't ever seem to find the time to add in those new healthy habits, you need to check out Lisa Lutan's busy, stressed, and food-obsessed show. This program will help you discover easy ways to improve your health and happiness. Plus, you will pick up all sorts of tips on better eating, fitness, relationships, how to manage stress, and a lot more. You'll feel yourself becoming healthier just by tuning in. Listen live every Thursday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. Addiction can affect our relationships, our families, our home, and work lives, but most importantly, ourselves. The recovery process can do wonders in the lives of people suffering from active addiction and also for those that love them. It's not just 12-step programs, but so much more. It's learning how to live life on life's terms. If you can relate to these issues or love someone who does, start with yourself. Start by tuning in to Miracles in Recovery with host Ray Lynch, Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Hope is in your corner. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. We'd love to hear from you about today's show. Send your email to Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. That's Dr. Susan at OccupyHealth.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back to Occupy Health. This is Dr. Susan, and here with me is Amy Berger. I was just asking if there are any medications that can contribute to the development of Alzheimer's. And uh, she was mentioning statins, which I believe deplete CoQ10 and adiponectin, which is one of the first things that lead you toward diabetes. So uh, tell us more. So, yeah, besides the statins, I would put uh, prescription antacids. So those are usually called uh, proton pump inhibitors, PPIs. There's some other names, but anyone who's on a prescription strength antacid, because these drugs interfere with healthy digestion. And obviously, you know, vitamins and minerals are required for a reason. We don't just take them for fun. You know, the brain needs B12. We need zinc. We need DHA. We need choline. Um, You know, we, we require these nutrients for proper cognitive function. And so when we take drugs that impair or inhibit the body's ability to break down food properly and to absorb these nutrients. I mean, to me, it's no pun intended. It's a no-brainer. I mean, this is not a, it, this is not a surprise at all that these drugs are potentially contributing to dementia. Well, there are studies that the PPIs increase the risk for dementia by forty percent. Those are recent, and the studies. I mean, we, we we know for sure the PPIs contribute to you know osteoporosis, bone fractures, because you know if you're not absorbing calcium and magnesium, of course your bones are breaking. But it's more important than that with the antacids because if you don't have enough acidity in your stomach, you're not going to have the pancreatic enzymes, you're not going to have bile being produced properly, and this will result in poor digestion. And just about every single person on this show said that if you don't have digested food and you've got a leaky gut, which we all have from one time or another, goes out into the body, starts an autoimmune reaction, starts inflammation, which is connected with Alzheimer's as well, and sets off a whole cascade of very bad things. So gut health and antacids are huge in this. Another thing, the antacid, is you need 
them, you need the acid to secrete gastrin, which helps close the upper flap of the stomach. You know, if that's not closed, you're going to get GERD and you're going to get more antacids prescribed. Another thing I would imagine would be a risk factor is antibiotics because they disrupt the microbiome. Almost every speaker has spoken about the microbiome as being essential for health, and it is considered a risk for uh, brain uh, neurodegeneration and because the gut speaks intimately with the brain. So we've got to, one of the things we need to do is keep our guts healthy and uh, you know just be aware of what we're doing when we're taking these medications. Any other comments? I No, I'm not as familiar with the microbiome research. I know um, Dr. Uh, Perlmutter is very, um, you know, very much looking into that. And I I tend to think that the microbiome is more the, the cart than the horse. You know, I think the diet has a much greater influence on the microbiome. But again, so the proper diet would, would influence that too. I agree. That's how we fix the microbiome is through our diet. Right. <laughs> Uh, absolutely. So, given all this information, what can we do to delay or possibly reverse cognitive decline? Well, um, this science is in its infancy. Let me be clear about that. Um, none of this is a slam dunk, but I, the research indicates that elevating ketones can improve cognitive function, even in people that have Alzheimer's disease. So, um, the, the fascinating thing about Alzheimer's is that even though certain, certain of these neurons in these affected regions of the brain have lost the ability to metabolize glucose, they are able to metabolize ketones. Um, and so when, when we elevate these people's ketone levels, whether it's through a ketogenic diet or uh, exogenous ketones, which is kind of like a ketone supplement, they do show improved cognitive function. Um, so the question is, can that actually reverse the damage or does it just kind of manage and improve the symptoms in the short term? Does it just improve the symptoms, but the disease is still going on underneath? You know, that's the research is brand new. We, we need to look at that over time. But I think that elevating ketones is considering that there are currently absolutely no effective drugs for this condition. We've got to start looking elsewhere. We've got to start looking at diet and lifestyle. And um, I don't know if you've had Dale Bredesen on your show, but Dr. Bredesen... Come on. He agreed oh, he's, he's fabulous. I mean, he's coming out with his own book in August, but he's really, to my knowledge, the first person in the world so far that has made significant inroads toward reversing this condition. In, um, he's had some very small cohorts of people with diagnosed either Alzheimer's or mild cognitive impairment, which is the precursor. And uh, he's got a multi-pronged strategy that includes diet. It includes um, exercise, a little bit of fasting, um, micronutrient repletion. You know, he does a slew of tests on, on micronutrient status, hormone status, insulin. He does all of that. And so it's it's this huge intervention with a lot of moving parts, but so many of these people have significant improvement. And not only improvement that's subjective, that they and their family know that their cognition is better, their personality is better, um, but they had they had one patient who, you know, they did, they did a brain scan and they could actually see that, I, I forget how many months apart the scans were done, but after being on his protocol... the, the actual volume of his brain had recovered and, and the you know, the med techs had never seen anything like this. They couldn't believe that this man's brain who had shrunk actually 
I, I can't grow back is kind of a weird phrase, but it had it had regained so much of its of its volume. They've never seen that before. Yeah, uh, Dr. Bredesen, uh, sorry about that. Dr. Bredesen has had some amazing results. For the listener, brain shrinkage is one of the hallmark signs of Alzheimer's disease, uh, the ventricles and the parts of the brain shrink. But what Dr. Bredesen does is he's, he likens it to about a roof with about 36 holes. So he finds that maybe just plugging up eight or so will start to improve. And where he starts depends on his tests. And as, as Amy says, her, his uh, protocol includes nutrition and exercise and various kinds of diet and stuff. But he's had some remarkable results. But let's get back to ketones. What is a ketone? Uh, ketones are molecules that are produced a couple of different ways. Um, the, the main way that the human body will produce them is when your insulin levels are very low. And because your insulin levels are low, you will not be using a lot of carbohydrate for fuel. You will be using fat. Now, whether that's your own stored body fat or fat that you get from your diet, most of your body will be fueled by fat. And when fat is broken down at a rate that kind of exceeds your body's ability to handle it all, some of that fat gets converted into ketones. And the ketones themselves are another type of fuel that the body can use. And not all cells can use ketones, but um, the brain is one organ in particular that really, really thrives on ketones. And, you know, it's some people speculate that the default human condition would have been to pop in and out of ketosis now and then with the seasons, you know, especially in winter when there wouldn't have been a lot of fruit or a lot of starchy plants available. We would have either been starving at, at some period of time or eating a lot more fatty animals. Um, and, you know, that doesn't mean we need to be in ketosis all the time, but Samuel Henderson, a PhD researcher into this area of using ketones for Alzheimer's, has said, and I love this line, but he said, a drawback of the modern high-carbohydrate diet is that it is keto deficient. And so, again, it doesn't mean that everybody needs to be on a ketogenic diet or be producing ketones all the time, but it does seem that this was a part of our evolutionary background, and it may be something that the body sort of expects from time to time. And, and and through eating such a high carbohydrate diet like we do in modern times, most some people will never experience that. So uh, when you say ketosis, that refers to our body burning ketones, and which is a state that uh, we could get into. But is there a way to measure if we're burning ketones or in ketosis? There's a couple of different ways, um, and the reliability and the accuracy of, accuracy of these things is, is debatable, but if you just want proof that you've crossed a threshold into producing ketones, um, you can test your urine. You can buy the urine test strips at a drugstore, at least in the U.S. I'm not sure about overseas. Um, now, of course, those are ketones that you're excreting, so you are not necessarily using those ketones, but that's still a sign, at least, that your body is producing the ketones. Um, you can also measure them in your blood, and you can measure your breath. So there's three different types of ketones and each of those different, um, you know, ways of measuring tests a different type of ketone molecule, but all of them will tell you whether or not you're in ketosis. And um, just, just to clarify, in case there's anyone out there listening, um, nutritional ketosis and a, and a ketogenic diet is 
completely different from diabetic ketoacidosis, which is uncontrolled, usually in a type 1 diabetic or a type 2 diabetic who's insulin dependent. If you do not properly match your insulin dose to your carbohydrate intake or to your blood sugar, you can get very, very high ketone levels. But somebody on a ketogenic diet, as long as they have a proper... um, as long as they're producing any insulin at all, unlike a type 1 diabetic, they, their ketone levels will never reach those very dangerous amounts. Yeah, key, key, ketoacidosis is a diabetic. Uh, they don't have enough insulin to counteract the acidity of the ketones, so that's where they run into trouble. So when you say uh, breath, so by, uh, would that be like if you smell a fruity smell on the breath, it's, that's an indication it might be in ketosis? Yeah, exactly. So if uh, if you're new to a ketogenic diet and your spouse tells you you have bad breath, that's probably a good sign that you're in ketosis because it's, it's actually acetone. And can you get false positives uh, if you're dehydrated? That's a good question. Um, probably. I, I'm not sure about the breath. I know on the urine... No, I'm just talking about ketone sticks. Oh, on the sticks. Um, no, I don't think you would get a false positive, but you may. it may look like you have higher amounts of ketones being excreted than you do if you're if you're um, dehydrated. And I guess over time, you it might show fewer ketones because your body gets so efficient at um, metabolizing them. Yeah, some, some people report that. Some people say that over time, the color, the, the color change on the urine strip stops happening because like you said, you stop, your body has become more adept at using the ketones, so you have to waste less of them out in your urine. Some people report that they'll change color no matter what, people that have been on this diet for years. So I, I think that varies. But yeah, if, if the color change stops, that's not necessarily a sign that you're no longer in ketosis. So you're saying that getting into ketosis is good. So you indicated that a low-carbohydrate diet, so we're not eating all these sugars and high glycemic loads, is good. But you also referred to exogenous ketones. Can you give me an example? Yeah, so there's there's two other ways to elevate ketones in the body other than eating a, a very low-carb diet. Um, one of them is through eating a lot of coconut oil or MCT oil, MCT meaning medium-chain triglycerides. Um, medium-chain, well, technically medium-chain fatty acids, medium-chain fats are a special type of fat that's abundant in coconut oil and also in palm kernel oil, but that's not really available in stores like coconut oil is. It's a special kind of fat that doesn't get metabolized the same way as something like, you know, corn oil or beef tallow or lard. It um, It's much more readily converted into ketones to the point that even if somebody is still eating a high carbohydrate diet, if they consume a lot of coconut oil or a lot of medium chain triglyceride oil, they will have elevated ketones. So for example, there's a physician named Mary Newport whose husband had Alzheimer's and she discovered that coconut oil improved his cognition by actually adding it to his oatmeal. He didn't change his diet. He was not on a ketogenic diet. All she did at the beginning was just give him coconut oil. And, and with that change alone, it was she noticed enough of a benefit to then do some other changes. But with, with that alone added to his high-carbohydrate diet, that was beneficial. Now, the exogenous ketones are um, more than just a fat that gets turned into ketones. These are actual ketones that are preformed that you can take usually as a drink. Uh, it comes as like a drink powder that you can add to a beverage. Um, they don't taste that good. Um, but these will, again, elevate ketones regardless of your diet. So um, if you have someone who is 
severely demented, has very advanced Alzheimer's or advanced dementia, you know, it's, it's almost impossible to get these people to change their diet, you know, unless you're in complete control of what they eat. Um, giving them these exogenous ketones will elevate their, their body's ketone levels and should theoretically improve their cognition, even if they're still eating a high carbohydrate diet. I get the impression that the goal of a keto, uh, ketogenic diet is to be in ketones all the time. But David Asprey on the show said that just being in ketosis occasionally, but he takes a shot of medium chain triglycerides with butter in his bulletproof coffee in the morning, that he, he postulates that just being in ketosis occasionally is good enough. Is that correct? Or do we have to be in ketosis constantly? I think it depends on what the goal is and who the individual is. Uh, for most people, like I said, popping in and out of ketosis like we probably did for thousands of years is probably good enough. And just eating a relatively low-carb diet, maybe even like a paleo diet that's not not ketogenic and not even low-carb by definition, but just free of what we would consider like the worst offenders, free of the refined grains and sugars. Um, but for someone that actually has dementia. I don't know that they're going to have a lot of cognitive improvement if they're not in ketosis. Um, some of them might, especially if they're a little bit younger, if we're talking about someone in their 60s who maybe doesn't have such severe dementia, you know, some of them might not require a ketogenic diet or to be in ketosis all the time, but certainly some degree of carbohydrate restriction. You know, so, some have, so we have a couple things that can help, uh, you know, retard the progression of neurodegeneration. Gut health is one. Uh, reducing carbs is another. Try, you know, get increasing our ketones. And what about exercise? Because Dr. Permuter had mentioned that the, if you exercise 20 minutes, six or seven times per week, it's a 50% reduced risk of uh, getting dementia. I believe it. I don't have the statistics in front of me, but certainly um, exercise is very good for cognitive health, I think for a couple of reasons. The first being, of course, it's very good for maintaining insulin sensitivity. Um, you know, especially if you eat a hard, everybody should exercise, but if you eat a high carbohydrate diet, then it's even more important to sort of give that glucose somewhere to go. Um, the other reason I think it's beneficial is there's something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And uh, I'm going to borrow a line from Dr. Ronald Hoffman. He said the greatest line. He said, BDNF is like miracle grow for your neurons. <laughs> and uh, exercise is one of the things that increases BDNF. And I guess it just it's supportive of neurogenesis. You know, we're led to believe that you can't make new neurons or that there's no new neurons made when you're an adult, and that's not true. So what other things can we do to retard the growth toward Alzheimer's? Well, assuming we can, you know, we're not 100% sure that we can. I think we can, but uh, so with the caveat that this is speculative and the, the research is kind of in its infancy, I do think... Um, uh, a little bit of fasting now and then, you know, you don't have to go a week without food, but there should be some portion of your day where you're not eating. You know, this this constant snacking all day long has got to go. And, and again, that's, I know I'm kind of beating the dead horse, but that has to do with insulin. Um, you know, the more often we eat, insulin really never has a chance to come back down to baseline. Even if you're eating a low-carb diet, you know, your insulin will, will rise to some extent every time you snack. Um other than that, uh, we did. We mentioned sleep earlier. I mean, sleep is not only is sleep important for insulin sensitivity, but 
these amyloid proteins that we mentioned earlier too, even though they're not a main cause of the disease, I do think they're making it worse. And these, these proteins are actually cleared away more effectively when we sleep. Um, they have a diurnal pattern in that they kind of build up while we're awake and the brain is better at clearing them out when we sleep. In fact, some, some researchers believe that the requirement for sleep that has been identified in every single animal organism that has been studied, everybody has some type of sleep cycle or sleep pattern, the scientists seem to think that it's because sleep is when these sort of metabolic and neurotoxic waste are cleared out of the brain. Uh, what, what, uh, what other preventives? What about uh, what kind of fats and oils we consume? Ah, good question. Um, so the more stable the fat, the better. Um, so you know, maybe this is heresy if people are new to this, but some of the stable animal fats like butter, uh, beef tallow, you know, duck fat, of course, if you can afford it and if you can access it, it's always best to get them organic or from grass-fed or free-range animals, you know, that are raised pesticide-free, you know, no uh, antibiotics in the feed. Um, Coconut oil, obviously, really, really good. Other things that are good, you know, definitely you want the omega-3s, from the fatty fish, so you want salmon, sardines, mackerel. But let's not forget those really important animal omega-3s also come from pastured meats and poultry, you know, but but that's where it's important to get the grass-fed. Um, other than that, uh, I don't think we need to be scared of omega-6. You know, there's too many people that are very, very terrified to eat any omega-6 at all. But, you know, omega-6 is, is an essential fatty acid. We don't have to go out of our way to get any, and I certainly recommend people avoid things like the corn oil and soybean oil and safflower oil. Um, But there's so many health benefits to eating things like nuts and seeds that do contain the omega-6, but, you know, they also have omega-3 and they're mostly mostly monounsaturated anyway. Yeah. um, Apparently, uh, the sunflower, sapphire, corn oil, I mean, uh, are very highly processed and probably get over-oxidized when heated to high temperatures. And what about trans fats? Trans fats, I I think they're best avoided. You know, there seems to be some research coming out now that they're actually not as bad as cooking in things like liquid soybean oil or liquid corn oil. I, I just think as long as the jury's out, they're best off avoided. And of course, the trans fats are going to be mostly in the products that I would recommend people avoid anyway. So things like, you know, bakery you know, store-bought bakery goods and, and canned frosting and crackers and things that we probably shouldn't be eating anyway. If, if you cook most of your food from whole, you know, one-ingredient foods, chicken, broccoli, beef, that kind of thing, you're not really going to have any trans fat anyway. You know, if you're not eating a lot of stuff out of a box or a package, then your intake of trans fat is is almost negligible. Okay. Now, I want to remind the listener that fats are very important. They're a rich source of energy helps us absorb our uh, fat-soluble vitamins. They're the building blocks and necessary for cell membranes. Uh, It's needed for myelin, uh, which protect the nerves, needed for the gallbladder, and they help insulate and protect the linings of various organs. So it's very important that we have fats, and uh, a low-fat diet is probably what's gotten our health conditions so bad lately. So um, what else would you recommend to, uh, you know, keep our our brains healthy? 
Uh, well, other than the fats, you know, we mentioned briefly some of the critical nutrients like, uh, well, the omega-3s are fats, but uh, B12 is very, very important for brain health. And of course, we've been scared away from some of the foods that are rich in B12, like liver and red meat and shellfish and egg yolks. Those are just such nutritious foods for the brain. Um, choline, choline, very important for the brain, richest sources, egg yolks. I mean, there's there it's in other foods too, but that's one of the richest sources. Um other now, I want to remind the listener that uh, if you don't have enough stomach acid, you can't absorb vitamin B12, and the stomach acid decreases with age, and very often uh, we could have low B12 levels even though it's not measured, so vitamin B12 is essential, and so, okay, and uh, we've probably got about four minutes left. Would you like to summarize? Would you like to give us more information or give us information how to get in touch with you? Uh, the stage is yours. Oh, thank you. Well, I'll just say, um, you know, I, I don't want to scare people into thinking that everybody must follow a ketogenic diet all the time in order to prevent Alzheimer's. I think once your brain function is already compromised to the point that you cannot metabolize glucose in the brain, yes, of course, a ketogenic diet is probably best. But I don't think that means a very strict ketogenic diet is required to prevent this. What I do think is required to prevent dementia, at least Alzheimer's dementia, is maintaining insulin sensitivity and maintaining healthy blood sugar over the course of your life. And that could be done with a proper diet, but not necessarily one that is strictly ketogenic. You know, you, you probably can't eat piles and piles of spaghetti and piles and piles of bread, but some people will have a higher tolerance for things like beans and parsnips and starchier vegetables. Um, so, and, but of course, this is, this is speculation, you know, we don't know, but, but we do know that plenty of, of long-lived healthy populations all over the world did not follow ketogenic diets. So um, I don't think it's the only thing that can help. I think it's extremely therapeutic once this disease has taken hold. Um, so, but yeah, definitely healthy glucoregulation is required. And, and that's going to be an individual thing as to the degree of carbohydrate reduction somebody requires in order to maintain healthy blood sugar. Um, other than that, you know, people people can find me at my website. It's tuitnutrition, T-U-I-T, nutrition.com. My book is called The Alzheimer's Antidote, and uh, it's available in the U.S. and the U.K. I'm not sure about uh, other locations just yet. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, we've got a couple minutes left. Any final words? Uh, obviously, there's hope. Uh, you know, so there's, there's hope that we can make some lifestyle changes to... Uh, set us on a better path. Any other words? There, there is hope. And I don't think, I don't think anyone's a lost cause. I think if you have a very elderly loved one that is very, uh, very advanced in the disease process, you shouldn't expect a miracle overnight cure. You know, in that case, get some exogenous ketones if you can. And maybe all you can do is improve that person's cognition and quality of life until they ultimately will lose their life from this condition. Um, but for people, especially that are starting to get this in their sixties and their early seventies, I don't think it's too late to turn this around, but you know, this isn't the time to dabble. Like you don't want to do this halfway. If, if you're serious about if you have dementia or your loved one has dementia and you're serious about riding this ship, you have to dive in headfirst. And no one ever died from a whole grain deficiency. You know, do not be scared of eating more fat. Do not be there. There are no 
nutrients, no vitamins and minerals whatsoever that you can get from sugar and starches that you can't get from low glycemic and low sugar and starch vegetables. Well, thank you, Amy. It's been such a delight and pleasure to speak with you and very good of you to share your wisdom with us. I'd like to say to the audience, uh, do your own research, check uh, information, consult with your health practitioners, and so you can help yourself and you can help others and be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week.